This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by the National Gondola Manufacturers Association. The NGMA develops and lobbies for pro-gondola policies that advance the well-being of gondola producers, building a more just, verdant, and peaceful society. NGMA. We help make the things that help make gondolas. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? It's going okay. How are you going? John, the two of us need look no more. <laughs> okay, I prepared that. It wasn't very good, but I had something prepared. I liked it. I liked it. You're singing to a rat. Uh, a rat uh, distortion pedal, or you are literally singing to a rat right now? I never understood the filter knob. Oh, it's just a... Um, it's just like... Is that a mid-pass? Is that a mid-pass? Yeah, high, high pass. High pass, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that was Michael Jackson's hit about the rat from uh, that movie. Oh, sure, Algernon. Yep, Flowers yeah. for Ben Algernon. Yeah, the, I loved that movie. It's about the death of a salesman in many ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've always found that it was a long <laughs> day's journey into night. Yes, it was an Ibsen of a dollhouse. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Let's keep I, going, come on. I wrote a song, uh, that's right, it is a, <laughs> it is a Hot L Baltimore it, no. it, mm, it mm. is a green light over East Egg. <laughs> you know, I, I prepared wrong. I should have spent more time on Wikipedia. You yeah. wrote a song. You wrote a song? It, it is uh, a short, happy life of Francis McComber. <laughs> uh, all on happy podcasts are different. I, um, I, I wrote a song once called A Long Day's Journey in Tonight. Was and, it pun? Uh, was there like a, like night is in like jousting? Mm, that that would have been that you know that's more of a Paul and Stone that could be song. a por- that could be yeah. a porno long days. Mm. <laughs> oh, ooh, hmm. night long, slash long days journey. Trying to I'm trying to work it out. You know okay, who's really wait. good? Who's really good at that pun who's, game is who's uh, that? Ken Jennings. He's really oh gosh, that. I bet he's insufferable. He's really something. <laughs> I bet he's a guy who works on the railroad. His name is Long Day. Mm, long d- oh hello it's a it's a gay it's a gay night porn thing it's got time shifting maybe some some star trek and uh you have a journey in the night long day and it's spelled d-a-i uh, long day mm-hmm. <laughs> i um yeah I, my long day's journey into night song came from the era where i was writing pretty epic but very precious songs hmm. uh there wasn't any it didn't have the kind of lighthearted, uh, uh, like grace that we, my later we, work did. Well, it's certainly graceful. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Were you telling that story in a kind of proggy way through the music, or was it through the lyrics? Good question. Good question. Because I don't think of you as you're a great lyricist, but you seem like an uncomfortable lyricist. Oh, interesting. Tell me more. Well, um, it seems to me that you, um, I mean, are you, are you mad at me that I said no, that? No, 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 not at all. I'm, I, <laughs> I always love it. I always love thoughtful, like thoughtful uh, com- commentary on my my work, you know, because even what what happens, right? You You go online, you read fans who are writing profusely, mm-hmm. and you read critics who are writing um, insufferably often. You know where they've listened to like the first thirty seconds of every song oh, one God, time. You hate and, that. You hate that so much. And um, and so somebody that is like really familiar with your work 
and also has like an interesting comment on it. That's I love that. Well, I'm happy to join. I would also like to just say thank you to uh, Roderick Nation, all the people who suggested campaign slogans based on lines from oh, your songs. I know. Mm. How fun was that? Mm-hmm. John <laughs> Roderick's throwing more than shapes. <laughs> really good. Really good. <laughs> um, well, no, some of this is genetic and some of this is uh, personal in terms of what sort of essay I'm writing here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, before I knew you as a, as a dude, I... I enjoyed your music and listened to it a, a lot and but then as i got to know you like I, I first of all i came to realize that i would made that joke you know a minute ago but mm-hmm. you you are when you listen to music mm-hmm. um you like to be immersed in it you you don't do other stuff you're not doing laundry while you're mm-hmm. listening to music generally right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that a thing like you don't listen in the car and mm-hmm. and and as somebody who's been privy to some of your uh tracks before their release I, I know that you appreciate people to listen to them with just listening to them all the way through please with headphones and don't fast forward <laughs> but you were saying that there, that there was something about me that made yeah. you feel like i was like an uncomfortable lyricist and that is very well it's funny because and there may be a, an element of a crucible here but you um i mean you write great great pop songs and you have a lot of uh, I don't know. I just I, I love the structure of of your songs and the way that they work, and I love the fruity parts, and I love the comp- complicated parts and the changes. But it seems like, especially in that, um, I, I I just get the feeling that you end up writing a lot of lyrics later in the process. You maybe maybe mm. maybe you got a line. I don't know, but it seems like even, even that little documentary. Like, didn't you write like that wasn't car parts? That was an old song. But aren't there songs that are pretty popular of yours that you kind of wrote in the studio? Oh the yeah, lyrics? several like the. Um... The stuff from uh, putting the days to bed. Uh, well, that, right? definitely the song "Hindsight." I, I wrote um, largely in the studio, largely in the last hour, and um, "Scared Straight." I wrote in the what? studio. You came mm. up with those lines like just writing in the studio. In the you know in the this is the this is one of my major work problems is that in the crucible in the in the pressure cooker, um, I. Uh, I produce, but but I don't like to be in the pressure cooker. It's not a happy place to be, and I don't. And I can see it coming, and I don't want I don't want that to happen either. That's why I spend so much time trying to devise a way to stop time, mm-hmm. stop the progress of time, so that I can just have four more hours. And knowing if knowing that if I could do that, I would just squander that four hours, just like I squandered the four hours. <laughs> Leading up to that's self awareness. Le- leading up to this moment uh, where I was, I spent that four hours thinking about how I could stop time. Um, right there's the, the and so when I finally get in that crucible, I am like I I I, I do make things there, uh, and part of the part of the reason that there was never a fifth Long Winters record is that I very deliberately and through <clears throat> methodical process eliminated all the corners that anybody could put me in right i just i just eliminated out of my life all of the ways i didn't need other people's money anymore i didn't need other people's approval anymore i moved out of my mom's house so she couldn't wag her spatula at me and tell me to get off the couch and um you know and i found that having a now i was in a round room and nobody could corner me and that is the, you know, that is, that's, uh, it's very telling. I think about it all the time. I thought about it this morning. Hmm. Um, I think about it in, in the context of this, uh, uh, the campaign too. Like I'm in a corner every day now. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, um, 
you, you and I have both experienced this thing where, where we feel like on the one hand, it's good to have external pressure. And on the other hand, we don't want external pressure. But for me, like external pressure is a real, it's a, it, it, it is a, an important component. It's a motivator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thinking about the, you think about, we use that phrase, the crucible of the studio. Um, the other thing is that you're paying to be there. There's extra mm-hmm. crucibility mm-hmm. because cause now you, you're paying everybody there, you're paying Tucker, you're paying whoever for you to sit there and feel bad. I think generally people don't like having to pay to feel bad about things. <laughs> you're this, paying- is why I, this is why I don't subscribe to magazines anymore. I don't want to pay to feel guilty <laughs> about the New York Times. You're paying and, 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 and there are, you know, the, um, the feeling that like this is your last chance. If you don't get this done now, like this is in some ways your last chance. You're going to end up uh, not not only not getting this done, but then you the, this dream is over. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and that was another thing that I got to the. I kind of rounded that corner off too, because it was evident that I did have a little time. My career wasn't going to be over if I took another week or took another two weeks. And then Twitter and the internet and. Uh, you know, podcasting and all charging, the other, charging your phone, all the other things came in and they, and they had, they also had, you know, there were rewards to those things. Like my, my career uh, for, there were a lot of musicians that were at my level in 2006 or 2007 that kept making music, but did not, but their careers didn't really continue because right. times, times change, right? Yeah, business, man. But I jumped, you know, I jumped from one ice flow to the next, and jumped to another ice flow and another, and uh, and <laughs> some of that was was running from the corner, but it all it all produced new exciting things, and and so uh, yeah, I, I I I you know we talk about this all the time, and yeah, I think yeah, about I'm, it. I'm fast. I'm utterly fascinated by this topic, and to get back to what you're actually talking about, um, it's. To me, it's um, it's such a dark art to try to understand. Uh, well, first of all, like why anybody wants to make anything mm-hmm. really differs a lot from person to person, and whether that it differs in terms of the I despise that word in that context motiva- or motivation or inspiration, but but like what you think you'll get out of having done it, and it's one of those weird things where you can look at somebody who's very prolific and successful. And, and it is a little like Anna Karenina, where you can look at somebody who's doing it great, and they're having a great time, and people are enjoying what they do, and they're just, you know, I have friends like this who are just, they, they just write all the time. Look at that John Scalzi guy. Like, he's, he's, such, he's such a cool guy, such a nice guy, so prolific, and so, like, Johnny on the spot to get involved in anything. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really feel like I learned a lot by being around that guy on the cruise. He was really ins- actually inspiring to me. But you want, look at somebody like that. You know, of course, you're going to kill them, but um, because it's super frustrating that they get so much done. It's easy enough to look at somebody where everything everything is clicking on all cylinders and go, well, obviously that's the way to do it. <laughs> but there's like ten thousand ways to not do it, and there's many multiple ways to not do it, and it's almost impossible sometimes to understand why you're not functioning at a tenth of the level of somebody else. And part of that could be pressure. And I think, of course, the obvious, the elephant in the room is the pressure you start to put on yourself. Because now you make one makes an impossible situation more impossible by constantly raising the bar, moving the bar, hiding the bar, and 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 then that just that creates like self doubt and anxiety and all the other kinds of stuff that make you 
utterly uninterested in even attempting something because mm-hmm. you feel like, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself as somebody who's getting later into life. Uh, I don't, this is of all the things I'm morose about. This is not the top of the list. But one thing I do think about is, well, what if I do make something? And it's not what everybody was expecting. And now they're disappointed, and mm. I've wasted my time, and why did I bother in the first place? <laughs> I think that's kind of a common feeling. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too, and and and, a, and a, definitely a feeling I share. I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking about artists and art makers all the time now uh, because that is, you know, that's the place I'm coming from as I'm talking to the city, right? And And I keep saying, like, you don't need – they're they're not a uh, they're not they're not a unified group of people that all work the same way, and a lot of them don't want um, your attention. Uh, they just need they you know they need to be left alone. They need to live in rundown places. They need to. That's part of their thing. That was definitely part of my process and my thing. And how do you convince a city to preserve? places that look to people driving by in their Teslas like abandoned or decaying warehouses that could be replaced with, with big, bright, shiny things. And the idea that in those, in those dark places is where the culture of 10 years from now is being germinated. Right. And those spaces are actually like key elements of any real city. And if you think of them just as underused property, and and the, and there's and the problem is there's no way to do an economic impact statement about about that about those spaces and the, and that kind of mental space, right? Oh God, yeah. I, you know, it, this is just just occurring to me as a an emerging thought technology. But if you think about the role of um, I'm, let's just, let's look, for now. Let's limit it to artists, but limit it to the role of artists in a city. What their role uh, ends up being in in the city is very. If you have true artists, as in people who are not just not just people who are making you know are successful at making seashell art that people put in hotels, but people who are actually exploring uh, new ideas and new approaches, and maybe aren't successful, quote unquote, yet. I I feel like there's an analogy to be made where. Artists are in some ways the city's children, no, not in terms of maturity, but well, you know, not in strictly speaking, but in the sense of like, you know, if you're a parent, like the dumbest thing that you can do is to constantly expect your kid to be a grown up when they're not. I mean, and there's so many ways you can fuck that up every day for 20 years. But do you know what I mean? Like, it really is helpful to understand that, well, you know, in, at this kid's level of development, this is what they're capable of. This is what they're maybe capable of. This is what they're mm, should be more capable of. But you wouldn't ever expect your kid to, like, come home after school and write a novel in a day mm. because that wouldn't – but but we don't ex- – a sane person does not expect that. You certainly don't expect your kid to be profitable. You understand that your kid is is a cost center rather than a than a um, profit center. My, my daughter can't even manage to go down to the corner store and get me cigarettes I, I, <laughs> every day. I'm like, it's simple. <laughs> you write it on her hand? <laughs> it's simple. Americans. She can't figure it out. <laughs> but we're, we're – I mean, any sane person – this is a strained analogy, but go with me. Any sane person would have those reasonable expectations and say, plus, you know, you're kind of nice to have around. And I, I'm very excited to be here to watch you become a more interesting person and to have a future that I could have absolutely no way to even fathom or predict. Right? Yeah. So you going with me on this? Yeah, and then but so with far. the city, we expect 
it's like we're interested in the artists once they're successful and in the New York Times. We're not as interested in the artists when they're just finding their way. But that attracts a lot of people to a town. Mm. Places where you've got an inexpensive place to live to kind of figure out a thing that you're doing. But we don't treat them like – we don't um, guard that like we would a space for kids. We, yeah, treat them, we treat them like dirty hippies who need to have their homes turned into places where people who work at startups will live. The next artist is never popular. You know, the, the, the last artist is, is always, you know, the, the one that people recognize is like, wow, he started from nothing and he's there, you know, he or she now is enormously popular and isn't that an amazing, uplifting story? And then the next artist is always the, is always back, back to square one, right? I mean, there yeah. are, there are people in the art curatorial world that are out there digging in the dirt, looking for, the next, you know, the next big thing. But for the most part, in terms of the way a city thinks, it, uh, it has no provision for the fact that hard scrabble is the, that is the pool where ideas are really generated. And, you know, the, the, the Mountain View Cupertino idea that you build a you build a tower and you fill it with young people from Stanford and that's where the ideas are going to come from is one is it is like one vision of the future but traditionally all those ideas come from all the all the real ideas that push progress come from people that are in a corner right and uh and in that crucible and then they have they have that flash that comes partly because they're under pressure and just being under pressure to make a, a hundred million dollars before you're 26 is not really creative pressure, right? And that's, that's why just, that, that's purely just it's there's the the self uh, motivated component, but then it's just competition. You're just yeah, trying just, to get there faster. It's just ego pressure, and that's why we have that's why the internet economy is based so much on. Let's take that one idea that somebody once had and and you know and put a cat on it. Or you know, let's like <laughs> let's modify let's modify this idea and modify it again and just keep like grinding and and you know no no real it's not really moving the civilization ball forward. It's just trying to move the profit ball around. Right. I mean on the way into town today, I had I saw two interesting things. I'm driving in and there's a I'm driving past Boeing Field, and there's a private jet parked on the tarmac, and it is painted in basically tribal tattoo graphics. And I'm like, that's, in, you know, like Mike Tyson face tattoo style. Um, like the aboriginal kind or, of. Yeah, Polynesian, mm -hmm. neo-Polynesian tattoo uh, graphical stuff, but with no real ethnic aspect it's been you know it's been taken out of context modified enough that it just looks like pointy lines but that's where it's coming from and then and so i'm looking at it and i'm like is this like a is this some kind of red bull thing or something and then <laughs> on the on the engine written in gothic script so you you see where we're going now oh no there's a, a latin phrase that's basically like ipsum dolor or, uh, you know, like literally. I don't remember what it, it sounds I, like Vice magazine. 
but you know, even Vice has enough self awareness to, if they were going to make that joke, it would have it would have had one other element, like a like a like a silver skull and crossbones or something. <laughs> but this was clearly somebody, some person who got rich and had a like a Maxim magazine or a Lad Mag uh, aesthetic, and now all the money in the world. And this was not a small jet either. You know, it was a, it's not, it wasn't a huge one, but like a medium size, like a, like a Gulf stream. Yeah. Somewhere in the citation Gulf stream zone. And this was their choice, right? This is like, I've got my own jet and I'm going to make it look badass. It's like a giant skateboard. Badass. <laughs> and you just know when you got on board, it was just going to be like, it was going to be <laughs> like being inside the hat of the guy from Jamiroquai. <laughs> right? I know exactly what you mean. Right? You just climb in that like fake fur hat and I'm just I'm driving past and I'm just like, you know, that's exactly that's exactly the thing, right? I mean, I, I was I was thinking about I woke up this morning singing um I'd like to buy the world a coke. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and I'm like I used to love that song. It's a really nice song. And I realized, like, uh, well, Cokes are expensive in America, but they're not very expensive around the world. But let's assume that you can buy, like, over the course of the earth, the average price of a Coke, let's just say, is 50 cents. And I think that's way higher. I think that's way too high. I think you could probably get, if you, if you, like, aggregated the cost of Coke around the world, Coke is probably three cents a cup. But let's say it's 50 cents. So there are... Actually, people, lots, a handful, but lots of people, a, a lots of a handful, who could literally buy the world a Coke. They could buy a Coke for every person in the world and pay for the logistics to supply that Coke to every person in the world. That's, that's pretty astonishing. Right? There are people in Seattle who could buy the world a Coke. Oh, my God. So anyway, I'm driving past this airplane and I'm like, Ugh, this, you know, and what did this guy do? Is he, he's some kind of. I mean, it's hard to know whether he is a, an an internet entrepreneur who who has who is just broadcasting this aesthetic because he's a badass, or whether he's some kind of actual like he owns Oakley sunglasses and this branding is sort of part of his overall brand of like badassitude. And I'm just going, I'm shaking my head, just blech. and then I pass a little one of those little sprint cars coming the other way and it says uh, and it has the logo of a company across the hood of the car and the logo is uh, something like graffiti be gone hmm. and it's a it's a sort of a brand new car and a startup company who just from the name I have to assume is is selling this service, get out there and really like really finally get on top of this plague of graffiti that's happening. Uh, that's sweeping the world. That's causing our cities to be so uninhabitable. And it's like the, the, the aesthetic of this guy's airplane and the, and what these people in this little car are imagining is the, is the, uh, is the real trouble here, the broken windows, syndrome and 
you know, there's, there's just no awareness that like, I mean, graffiti artists are, are exactly the people who are backed into a corner and then produce something at their best at the, the best graffiti work is the, is, you know, is up there with the best art. Right. And the, the worst graffiti art, like it is still speaking in a language that most people don't, that don't recognize it as a language, don't understand what's happening. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there's a whole philosophy behind it of reclaiming the the brutalism of of the concrete public space. We've we have we've acquiesced to most of our public space being un, just bare concrete walls. Uh, I'm talking about under freeway passes, and you know there's so much space in the city that we just stood idly by while big you know, like big infrastructure determined that what we were going to look at was gray concrete. And as you're driving around, it's just like you're in a, you're in a world of gray concrete and that's the, that is an aesthetic and it's an aesthetic that is practical, but it's still a, it's still a powerful aesthetic. And graffiti has a a whole philosophy or a whole, you know, it's ideological in a way, like we're reclaiming that space with color at the very least. And here these guys are puttering along, you know, in their car. Graffiti be gone. And I'm sure that the, that what they're doing is going to businesses who have had their front doors tagged and right. you know, mitigating that. But and I'm just thinking about this guy sitting in his uh Jamiroquois plane and he's probably on a gold cell phone and he's probably talking to a graffiti artist about <laughs> you know, putting up a uh, putting up a you know a piece mm. on the wall of his uh you know his concrete loft style office space in down in the mission in san francisco i'm, I'm presuming this guy lives in san francisco sure oh i imagine i think it's that take, take that as red I, I would like for you uh potentially to write the song about this but mm. i think i'd really like the late harry chapin to write ah, yes with a little twist at the end see he is not an uncomfortable lyricist he would dive right in Mm-hmm. He knows how to t- tug at your heartstrings. It would be like an O. Henry component to it. Mm-hmm. They'd realize that they were like, I don't know, maybe they're twins separated at birth. The oh. graffiti, the graffiti guy and the plane guy. Oh, hello. God, yeah, Marla. see, there's a twist. There's a twist to it. You, you just, I just got chills. <laughs> the cat's in the cradle and he's, he's got his spray paint can and the little boy blue in his... Tag on the door. <laughs> when are you coming his... home? When are you coming home, Jamiroquai? <laughs> The the reason that uh, the reason that I was so enthralled by Long Day's Journey and Tonight was that you know that play came out in the early '40s, and really, my, but it takes place earlier, right? Yeah, it I, takes place know, like a, it's Eugene O'Neill's childhood, right? Right, right. But you know, it was like it was that it was that really fruitful period of Americans like letters mm-hmm. uh, in oh, the yeah. middle in the middle of the century, the modern um, age, man. That's right. And, and that, so when I think about that, like my, my dad was 21, let's say my uncle Jack was 17 and that play landed and they, both of those guys, my dad and his brother both uh, told me many times that that play described their family and described their household in a way that no no other work before or since, and they both identified so strongly with it. Um, 
and I, you know, I, th- I feel like my uncle Jack had has been trying to write his version of a long day's journey into night his whole life. Wow. You know, he sends me drafts of of plays that he has been working on about his childhood. He's in his late eighties now. Oh God, that's so sad. Well, because those you know those guys were trying to make sense of the of the of the world they grew up in, and this was an this was a one of those great moments where a, a work of art landed and it helped. It helped my, uh, you know, it, it becomes helped my a little, little like a catharsis because mm-hmm. I mean, in like a classical sense where this is an instrument for, I mean, I think anytime you have something that comes along that puts a name or a story onto something you didn't think had a name or a story where you go, Oh wow. I really see myself in this. And you, you know what I mean? Catharsis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I feel like they felt really alone and isolated growing up uh, in the sense that they were living in a commu- middle-class community where their friends didn't have these problems there, you know, and that, that's a, that's a little bit of everybody's problem, right? You never know what is happening behind closed doors in your friends' houses. Right. But, but here they, here they saw their story uh, writ large and, you know, and I think it changed them both. And so, as I was, you know, when I was 21 and trying to understand my own life, I, w- I read that play and put and cast my father and my uncle in it, and it helped me. You know, it's, a, it's like a, a work of art that, that has, has kind of started to be threaded into my family's sense of itself. And um, so I, I'm always, you know, uh, I recognize it as as more than just a uh, like a seminal work. It's a, you know there's a personal element to it because because my grandfather didn't wasn't wasn't able to write his own story, and my dad never wrote that story, and my uncle has has tried. Mm. You know we were we lean on artists for so much, and and they they do so much and it's never a thing that you can properly put a price on. And that's a, that's a cliche to say, but, but it's, um, but it's something I'm just, I'm I'm thinking about all the time. Like Mm -hmm. we, we, we have, we have gone so far in that direction of trying to figure out like, well, what, what's the value of, Angry Birds. The value of Angry Birds is over how many people? How many people download it? And how many people buy it? Yeah, and you know, and and that is reckoned to be over a billion dollars. And the value of Eugene O'Neill, or the value of um, Mick Jagger, even you know, is reckoned to be. I mean, Mick Jagger is one of the richest rock stars in Britain with a network worth of $200 million or something, which is one-fifth of the value of Angry Birds. <laughs> and yeah. I don't even care if your numbers are right. That's such a great <laughs> statistic. I'm going to use that. You know, It takes the, all five members of the Rolling Stones to equal Angry Birds. They oh, still, no. don't, still don't reach it. The other, the, other, the other guys, I mean, I think Keith Richards is worth uh, less because he had to spend all that money uh, getting his blood replaced multiple times. And then the other guys, they just get just, a day. The other guys get a day rate. Yeah, they're just on salary. But like the the collected work of Eugene O'Neill has a value in our culture of I can only imagine a 
couple million dollars, a few million dollars, a, a handful of millions of dollars, right? Uh, spread over all the the his uh, inheritors, and so uh, so that is you know that that's hard for me as I go out into the city and say like, yes, we need to build transit. Absolutely, we need to build affordable housing. Absolutely, we need to provide clean water and work for an equitable city. But how do you also put a value on on the the intangible things that make a place special and that make us want to stay alive and that make us want to um, you know that that help us live and love and and without being able to attach a value to it, how can you advocate for it? Mm-hmm. How can you put it up against something else that is that you know is clamoring for this, those same resources, even if those resources are just let's leave this space alone or let's um, let's leave these people alone? Uh, it's a it's it's a real tangle, and and a lot of people would say. Well, that's, well, just to clarify, yeah. do you feel like you get implicit pushback because you don't have like an economic white paper on the value of artists, you know, 2001 to 2011 or something? Well, and the thing is you could make – I mean there are lots of people who want to make the argument that like artists bring it – you know, they put – they stick out their Clinton thumb and start wagging it and say Clinton – or I'm sorry, not Clinton, but the artists have brought in – over $274.6 million into Seattle's economy since March of 2011. That's like going into a, you know, that's showing up at a, at a, at a gunfight with a knife. You know, that's, that's, that's not going to, that's not, the argument's not going to fly. Well, no, the argument, I mean, I feel like that argument does fly because people hmm. love to hear numbers. Okay. And they, okay. and they nod and they go, oh, yes, it is. It's an industry just, it's an industry equivalent to the industry of chroming uh, uh, hubcaps and pipe and bumpers, you know, like but you, but you can package it. It is, it, it is the numbers are what enables it to be packaged into something that can be easily explained and understood. Right, right. But, but what what you're talking about there is the last artist, right? The people that made stuff that generated money, and we recognize their value, and we go, oh, the last artist made us two, the last artists made $250 million for Seattle. That's what, we do support them. But I'm always talking about the next artists have made nothing, and you can't, they've made no money for you yet, and you can't, uh, you can't gauge their value by, by the, their potential money. Some of the best artists never make any money, and we only recognize their value later. Mm-hmm. But you can't go into Seattle public schools and say, and think of arts education as job training, which is how a lot of people think about it. Yeah, when that resource constraint starts to really tighten, it's um, not a happy thing, but a somewhat natural thing to go. Well, you know, we got these tests, right. and we got a there's not a, there's not a test on you know Brock and Picasso. There is a test on this specific set of mathematics. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's crazy is for me, like the idea of teaching math because it will get you a good job is, um, is I think a, like a, like a disgusting undervaluing of 
the importance of learning math. Like, well, when that becomes, I mean, when that becomes the criteria, which it is a lot of the time, setting apart the testing stuff, when whether when you start getting into the like whether this gets you a job thing, you start to really sour a lot of what makes education good in the first place. And I'm not just saying that as a liberal arts fruit, mm-hmm. but just just even any of the intrinsic reasons why you won't, might want to be a more rounded, educated, and exposed to the world person starts to fall away if that's your bar. Right. Well, and you think about what is math? I mean, the, uh, the. It's a trade. <laughs> you know, it's a well, trade. Computer maths are. Computer maths are a trade, yeah. But math, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the many uh, atheists listening to our program who live in Brandenburg or somewhere uh, uh, around Lake <laughs> Balaton in Hungary, I know that they're out there. They're going to. You can see the fedoras from here. <laughs> they're going to object to this. But, you know, math is the language of God, right? It's the, it's, you look over God's shoulder for a moment. And, and by God, do you mean Richard Dawkins? And by God, I mean all of the, uh, all of the uncaused causes, all of the random. <laughs> all the, the first movers, all the great first all, movers. All the negative numbers. Uh, and, and so, you know, it is, it is both a human thought technology, math, I mean, uh, negative numbers, right? It's a thought technology, but also it is an uncovering. It is a discovery of a thing. It is a a discovery of a first principle. And to equate that with like, to to equate learning that with like developing some skills that are really going to help you later in life, as opposed to like, should we not all be thinking about this all the time? Should not math and higher math and the implications of math not be on our minds all the time because they, they should be. We should be looking at everything through a lens of math because it is the only reason that the, that the things we've built are standing and it's the, the as far as I can tell, the only coherent um, like fabric to explain any. It's kind of what anything. almost everything comes down to. Math, right, and yeah. it's a and it's a it's it's beautiful poetry, and 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 at the certain at a, at the level of molecular biology or or uh, particle physics or you know like it all is this unified theory that we're that we've been struggling to to find or struggling to reconcile with gravity, and that should be at a, at a certain level like our temple. We should go to that all of us every week or every day and say, wow, whew, we've really, you know, we've really figured out a lot in recent memory. Mm-hmm. Just in the last hundred... And, or, and also years. refigured things out. That's the other, just, that's the neat thing about science. Um, that we're always trying to say, like, did I get that right? Yeah. Like, let's, let's keep checking that. Right. And so then you go into the schools and you imagine, like, all the constraints on people, even ones who feel that poetry... And go into teaching full of that, that poetry, and then, you know, requiring them to govern or to teach in prose. And little by little, you just drain that poetry out of all those experiences. And kids are sitting there, and they're just like, "Ugh, I'm in prison." And and it's almost unavoidable and the the pressures from parents like is he going to make it is she going to be a good 
Is she going to be a good human? Is she going to get through to the other side and be one of the good humans? Well, can, can I jump in? Yeah. I think there's there's a couple things on the table here that are that are really interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up in Cincinnati where we had a really good public school system. And, um, and yes, I'm sorry, there is about to be a little bit of bagging on Florida coming in a minute. I apologize <laughs> in advance. Now, no, wait, let, I mean, let me just ask before you get started. Yes, please. Did you ever, I mean, I'm, and I think I know the answer, but did you carry a giant comb with the handle sticking out of your back pocket? Yeah, goody comb. Did you carry a, a goody a goody, a goody brand comb? Sure I did. Okay. I'm not a monster. Right. No, especially, um, well, here's the thing. I'm glad you asked this question, John. Uh-huh. When, I, when I was younger, uh, at home, uh, a family would have a large goody comb, something on the order of maybe, you know, six, six to eight inches. Right. Right. And then there was a new thought technology in the early 80s where they made them small. And you could put in your pocket and that would stick out of your right back pocket of your uh, of your uh, Levi's uh, corduroys. Your right back pocket. Let me right. I cannot be more clear. Goody comb right back pocket tines facing in facing toward your seam. I have precisely the exact same mental picture. You <laughs> never have it in your left pocket and you no. never have the tines facing out. No, come on. Oh my God. Where so, did that memory come from? And the problem is I never had a goody comb. And I remember, and I remember... Oh, we aspired to have a goody comb. I did, I aspired to have a goody comb. And the problem was, I guess I couldn't keep from losing things, or my mom never recognized... <laughs> this the, is why we can't have nice combs. Right. My mom would buy me one of those combs that you would find in a men's room. Oh, the ones know. that were like, that would break? Well, yeah, in a, in a, in a jar of, of light blue, blue disinfectant. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to carry one of those around. Plus, I never... We used to carry a comb. Around. We used to carry a comb around. Can you yeah. believe that? Yeah, big comb with the handle sticking out. Big comb. So on the one hand, the um, Cincinnati school system was uh, was it was it was terrific. I mean, you know, I, maybe this might have just been the time and the place, but whatever. In any case, all I can say is that making the jump to then going to public school in Florida was a was a very different thing. And I, I've said this numerous times in the past, and I don't mean to be disparaging because it's hard to do things. But we had this thing called vocational wheel. Um, I don't know if you had anything like this, but in seven, I, I, I don't think we did. I love it. I love it so far. Okay, well, this is this is um, you know, as you like to say, the Sun Coast of Florida in nineteen. So I didn't go to seventh grade in public schools, but those who did go to seventh grade in the junior high school, so at seventh and ninth grade, you have all these vocational tracks. You have you have you can take a health class, you can take um, marketing, uh, you can take uh, graphic arts, or as they called it, drafting back then. Uh, you could take wood shop, you could take metal shop, and so on and so forth. And those were really like like you. By eighth grade, when I went there, you had to take at least one of these trade classes. Now, the year that I missed, the year before, every seventh grader, in at least in Pasco County, had to go through something called vocational wheel, which is where you spent two weeks in each of the vocational classes. Oh. Which, on the one hand, is a pretty brilliant idea. Because like it's, it. it's nice to have exposure to all of those. You make a lamp, you make a toolbox, you do all that stuff. You know, you, learn, you sell pencils at the school store, you learn to use a T-square, et cetera, et cetera. On the face of it, very cool. But I remember even then having the feeling that I later greatly expanded as I got older, that you start, you have that, I think we all have that day. It comes at different ages, but you start to realize, wow, school's not just about teaching me math and English and science. You know, when you're very young, maybe you figure out school's kind of about teaching me to be places on time mm-hmm. and stand in line. Mm-hmm. But by the time it gets really hairy, because by the time you get to junior high, you're, before you really transition into the whole, like, here's stuff you need to learn for college. It's this weird period where almost everything you're exposed to in junior high is about following rules and not becoming a burden on society. Yeah. I think that's kind of what it is. And I think we don't, we don't say that. 
Although we kind of realized that, wow, places with good schools tend to have better results. Isn't that a funny coincidence? But I just remember feeling at the time that, like, in that instance, uh, you know, and, and this is even still when we had music classes. This isn't even still when we had art classes, which now are kind of like little side things in our public yeah. school. It's yeah. not like a main thing. You don't get you don't get PE um, math or excuse me, you don't get PE art and music every day. It's mm-hmm. something you go and do like an assembly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that was one thing that really struck me. Um, and so, I mean, I, not that that's a bad thing. Put in a different way. I just remember feeling like it was like a Stalin. It felt Stalinist in yeah. the sense of like everybody. You remember? You remember when we were kids and you'd say like, "Well, you know, in the Soviet Union, you get a test when you're 12 years old, and that decides what you do for the rest of your life." Right. And I kind of remember feeling like, "Well, the the tacit message here is like all the suburban kids that can pull it off and make it into algebra, pre-algebra and algebra. Like we know they're going to be pretty okay. We know what track they're on. What yeah. about these other kids? They're not coming in as much. Like they need to learn how to make a toolbox." Mm. Or a pencil holder. A pencil holder, yeah. So anyway, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that that was a thought that occurred to me. But yeah. it, it, the, lar- the larger point I want to get at, though, part two is, and I, I'm going to play the race card a little bit. Um, when, when we talk about things like, is this a community that is friendly to art and artists? Is this a community where there's enough, um, there's enough room in the lower middle class for people to come in here without having a full-time, you know, not having a typical career-based full-time job and do interesting things. Mm. You know, how do you put a value on that? Well, you're struggling with that. How do you, here's the thing though, how do you put a value on diversity? And by, I mean, I mean every kind of diversity, Mm -hmm. right? I think the first kind of diversity is, are you around people that are not your same race and gender? Mm-hmm. But are you also around? Are you around people that are of different, differing economic classes and backgrounds? Uh, have more locked in or less locked in futures? Do you know what I mean? And I, I guess I feel like in this, in the same way, maybe as um, the artist issue, there's this deeper issue of well, we don't really notice diversity until it's gone or until it's quote unquote like under control. But I can tell you dimes to donuts that moving to this town as a white guy in an Asian neighborhood in 1999, there were a lot more black people living mm. in the entire Bay Area. Mm. I mean, there's still black people in Oakland, but now, you know, less because it's, mm. it's getting more expensive, too. But like the, the diversity is the people with the money can afford to come in. OK, I'm going to be kind of simple for a minute. But the people mm. who can afford to come in push out the other people. And now it is white people pushing out white people. Like it's it's becoming and you know, but any any of the any of the, whether you're a person of color or not, but it is the app class who's moving in. Let's make no mistake about it. Mm-hmm. It's people in finance and people in venture com- uh, funded companies and big corporations. But it is certainly not becoming more interesting and it's certainly not becoming more diverse. And it's certainly it's a lot of people who are doing things like making the house that, that somebody else gets thrown out of turns into a condo. And now the restaurants and the bars around there get moved out because they're making too much noise. And so I don't, I don't have a unified field theory here, but like in the same way I've seen this in with work I've done in the past. There was a time when the value of user experience was thought of as just, you know, spray on usability. You just go in and make some changes, blah, blah. You guys go do your coloring. And now you realize, you don't understand this, the difference between a good experience with an airline and a bad experience with an airline, even just based on their website, will completely change your feeling about the company. Mm-hmm. You're feeling, if, you're, if you are an artist and a person of color and you come into a town, you're going to know in 10 minutes how welcome you are there mm-hmm. and whether that's a place where you can make a life. So I, I don't know how you quantify that except by saying having that having some kind of diversity as much as the economy and the people can bear, like makes it a better place. Well, the 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 tendency on the West Coast, and I think this is the tendency increasingly everywhere, is to <clears throat> practice 
liberalism in a in a very sort of um, well to practice lip service liberalism, right? And what that ends up looking like is that diversity is welcomed as long as it's within the as long as it's within the confines of bourgeois values and culture, right? So we welcome all people into our bourgeois envelope of values. What we do not understand how to do is to um, provide opportunities for people who are not trying to, who, you know, who aren't trying to move into a bourgeois state, but who are literally struggling to survive or literally struggling to just, you know, to remain, right? Just to remain in place and not be displaced from their own homes and communities. And so Seattle has a, has a great record of diversity in government, diversity in, you know, in 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 the in like public hiring and I mean we we have tried and tried and tried to live up to uh, our own standards. But we still don't understand how important it is that neighborhoods remain intact or that they're, you know, that for a young white artist living on Capitol Hill, the experience is incredibly different than uh, that from a, that of a young black artist living in the Central District. And, you know, that, that feeling of like great work comes from being backed into a corner, but there's a certain point where you're backed into the corner and, and either under threat of violence or just right. uh, you can't, you know, like there is no corner for you because it's... Um, you know, you're backed into an oven. I think that distinction is utterly lost on some people, that there is a distinction between having a place where you can struggle to make rent and still make it and a place where the typical rent is five times what anybody could ever scrape together. Yeah. It's a really big difference. And, and just, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of white kids uh, who are making art and music like schlep around in the town and they, you know, and they, they walk from dark doorway to dark doorway and they feel like they are living uh, a rough and... And living a dangerous uh, downtown life, and that informs their art and character. But when the police slowly cruise by and look them up and down, and they stand there in their dark doorway and they go, Oh man, the fucking cops just scoped me. Fuck those guys. The difference is that they kept the cops kept driving, right? They scoped them and they gave them a dirty look, you scumbags. And, but they kept driving and the, and the young white artist feels like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the the grit of the city is really informing my views and I'm going to take that back to the art that I'm making that basically co-ops, uh, the history of jazz and, uh, (laughs) and hip hop and I'm going to, and that's going to be some meaty, you know, gnarly shit. Well, the, you know, the young black guy in the same exact situation who is, probably actively trying to stay out of dark doorways uh the cops roll by and turn on their flashers and and pull over and and ask for his id and where does he live and and what's he doing out right and that little bit of difference is a thing that you you know you hear reported over and over and and yet it's very it's impossible to know how that changes your feeling when you are backed into a corner 
in your own art making when you are you know when you're poor and and are struggling and and saying to yourself can i even be an artist can i even make this stuff i need to do it but i also have to survive and you know and that that decision making and that's and that what ends up happening is that that you do have a an increasingly bourgeois art culture where the people who are able to make it through are the ones that in that moment can call their folks and say can you cover my rent this month or you know and that's not uh, that's not a slight on anybody it's just that you, there are so many people have to drop out at that moment right, and, right. They're, and they're not making things then and they are embittered and rightfully so and having that conversation with with the city at large particularly in a world where people want to say look the market is the market it's it's just what it is it's not a uh, there's no malice attached to it it's just a natural system that's so privileged well and 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 in a way like i mean i hear that from from all walks of life the idea that we have set in motion a system which is organic that the market is just humans and the, and it's and in a way it's just it's just a language we've given ourselves to express our natural desire to trade mm-hmm. or whatever and so this you know this rampant and 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 with, with no awareness or less awareness of the fact that it's uh, that the market is rigged all, every step of the that's, way that's that, that's what i mean when i say privilege i didn't mean to use the the code word but you know i i'm i'm becoming more i guess sensitive in some ways to that in myself and and seeing it in others but in the case of somebody who's that economically privileged um you know folks with a lot of money uh the biggest problem they face is losing some of their lot of money hmm. so in a down economy where things go wrong. So in, a, in an up economy, they get to go, hey, yay market, right? And you get to say, well, of course, this is the market. Yay I'm just, market. Uh, uh, yay market, because I'm just benefiting from this completely natural thing, because we can all agree on cheese. This is what the market is. The market is that I get lots of money because things are going great, mm-hmm. right? And then when things go less great, they still can find a way to get by. And that's not because they're brilliant. It's because they have lots of money and connections. And But that is, even though that is the elephant in the room, you sound like a conspiratorial nut, when you try to point that out to somebody, yeah. because everybody thinks their life is hard and it is, everybody's life is hard in its way, right? I and mean, we don't be, you know, inhumane about it, but it is, it's a little disingenuous to call it just the market when there's all kinds of things like you might get, be getting subsidies or tax credits or all these different kinds of ways that you can, you can game the system and then still call it the market. Well, it's, it's not, it's not, that's not the market. I mean, the market is you go down and try to find fresh food in your neighborhood where there's no groceries. That's what the market is. The market is you go to 7-Eleven and buy a brown banana for $2. That's the market. Brown banana. That was a great movie. <laughs> is, that, is that the one with the Chloe Sevigny? Yeah, Chloe. Cholea Sevigny. Ceviche? Did you ever see that scene? I never did. No. Well, it's hard I, to watch. Yeah, no, I wasn't interested. That's Good for not you. My, not my stuff. Mm-mm. What's What's really curious to me lately, you know, the last week or two has been really hard for me. I've been, um, I've had, a, you know, a, a lot of anxiety, a feeling that I'm, that I'm behind the eight ball and running to catch up. And, uh, you know, m- maybe coincidentally, uh, a lot of the people that were my, my real brain trust uh, all took vacations all at once. And so I recognized how important it is for me to sit 
just sit with friends and talk about what's going on when things are really going on. And uh, I was feeling very alone and, and I was, I, I'm going through this process of fulfilling the, uh, you know, checking off the boxes that a candidate for a public office ha has to, has to do, you know, uh, fulfill these, these obligations. And it's a, it's a, it's been an incredible learning experience because we talk about you and I, we talk about conspiracy a lot or the, the sense that a lot of people have that, that the system's rigged or gamed or that, that there is malice. And, and the, and, but the reality that like given human nature, how, how relatively few things ever even could be a conspiracy. And, and what ends up happening. So, so what I've been going through is every, and I don't mean to say going through like it's, um, you know, like I have, uh, like I'm going through chemo, but like every legislative district in the city has its own democratic party organization. Mm -hmm. And those party organizations have, you know, there's a, there's a chairperson, a secretary, a sergeant at arms. There are, uh, there are rank and file of different, um, you know, LDOs and all these different jobs that people have. And it's a, it's a, it's a form of organization, a voluntary organization that, that people love to do right. It, they, these groups are exactly like, um, a lot of people I met in rock and roll who love to talk about the liner notes on records <laughs> when they're like wonks, they're wonks. Right. And so, there are there are so many more people who like to talk about records than there are people who make records, right? And and as a music maker, I, I, I never fully understood the um the the record store maven. I, I and I know a lot of musicians who are also record store mavens, but for the most part, like the people who sit who collect records, who consume music in that way, but who think about like who the original bass player was, what the studio, you know, like who, what the B side was, uh, what label it was on all that collecting and churning of information, mm -hmm. catalog, cataloging librarian, uh, that librarian impulse that we have yeah. in rock and roll. And there are people like that in the nerd world. There are, uh, you know, the tech world, there are sports, people like, like sports is yeah, the right. ultimate expression of it. But I mean, like even like when I was a little kid, I, I was I was more into like things like statistics and the baseball cards and the averages and the on base percentages and stuff than I was into actually watching a game. Yeah, right. Same with same with D and D. There's there's pe people who are just into this the culture and wonkery of it. And so so there there's a huge uh, community of people in politics who have that same impulse, that same desire to get together and that then and, and the language that they get to use is Robert's Rules of Order, which feels very um, you know, which is official feeling and powerful and they have jobs and the democratic party is a, is actually the one of two parties in America that ever has power. So, so they feel, um, empowered, right? They're part of a, they're part of a big operation. And so people run for office and they need to go around and meet these democratic district organizations talk to them and earn their endorsement and you see it 
you see this go down, right? Nobody has all the time in the world and they don't, they have the time maybe to read your thing, but they don't really have the time to sit with you for a half an hour and talk to you. And so what they do is invite all the candidates to come in. Each person gets to speak for one minute. And then the, the group of people who have come to the, this meeting vote on them. And it, wow. Like, wow. That's like, really, it's, it's that simple. Yeah. Horse, horse flesh. You know? And so you, so part of running for office is you have to be able to go into a room and in one minute lay out your, your plan for governance <laughs> for an entire city. Oh man. You get, you get a whole, you get a whole minute. You get a minute. Huh. And then, uh, based on that, and 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 you know, and whatever research the people in the room have done independently, then they decide to endorse you or not. And that endorsement is either valuable or not, depending on how many of them you can rack up, and whether or not you're running as an insider or an outsider. You know, it's but but the candidates. I mean, nobody has time to sit and talk to the candidates for thirty minutes, but the candidates have to run all around town. And all basically together in a pack. I see, I see the people I'm running against now every day. And we're all standing there giving our one-minute speech. And we don't, we're not really inclined to be chummy with each other. We are comp- competing. But really, we're the only other people that know what this feels like. So you stand there and you look at, the, you look at your opponent. With, I mean, I've, I look at them with sympathy in my eyes and just go like, how are you holding up? You know, is everything mm. fine? And they kind of <laughs> just give me the like uh, you know, the uncomfortable, uh, like, oh, hello, uh, weird handshake. And I'm like, seriously, though, I mean, this is really hard. And they're like, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they get up and make the Clinton thumb and give the speech. And uh, and I give this I give my you know, I can't. I'm very uh, I'm still disinclined. Still, still working on them. <laughs> still disinclined to give a one Le- minute learning speech. the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> and and. And I watch it and I think from the outside, this seems like a conspiracy, right? You have to do these things. These people are all insiders. They are, you know, the, the, the logic of it from outside the system is they're just voting for their friends. No new blood can ever get through here. You know, this is how we think of the political system, right? Yeah. But from inside it, I see like what a hodgepodge of accident it is, you know, and how this is a, these meetings are kind of like a vestigial version of the town meetings of old new England, you know, then, and, and the people there are really proud of participating in the democratic process mm-hmm. and the degree to which this isn't very democratic at all. And that ultimately the decision is being made by a vote of 25 people, whether or not to endorse one of these candidates. And 25 people or however many voting, uh, not to be too dismissive, but, but really based on like who presents well, given the context. I mean, I know that's a microcosm of a much bigger uh, dog and pony show, but really to, to decide that based on, I mean, is, is it really just that appearance? There's no like white paper or anything like that. You just go in and or like how they like the horse, horse flesh after 60 seconds. They can, you know, they can go online and do as much research as they want, but there, but that's not, it does not appear to me. Some of the people know, but some of them are just, this is their, this is their moment. And that moment, that one minute of you speaking to them is more than most voters 
uh, know about hmm. candidates, right? Yeah. Most voters do not even see a minute of them. And so it does not, like so many things in public life, it doesn't feel like a conspiracy once you're there. But the end result of it looks like the product of a conspiracy because the only people that really can make it all the way through this hazing and make it, you know, and, and go through all of these things and do this effectively are people who are either very practiced in the art of it or who have a lot of pre-existing relationships with those 25 people in the room because they are longtime Democratic Party o- operatives themselves or people who have enough money that they can bypass that process entirely and appeal directly to the people with like, I'll buy the world a Coke, vote for me. And it's, it's fascinating to see, like, I wouldn't even describe the process as broken. It's just built, it's just built out of, it, it's, like so, it's like all those buildings in Greece where, uh, people were, you know, people in 400 AD were like, we need to build a house. Let's go take some of those rocks from the foundation of that old building. And they rebuilt a house out of blocks from the Parthenon. And then that house burned down and somebody said, let's take those old burned rocks and build a fence out of them. And pretty soon, you know, so, uh, somebody added onto the fence and it became a, a little bit of a castle. And then they put a steeple on it and called it a church. And it's like, now we walk in and it's a cell phone store <laughs> at, on the outskirts of Athens. And you're like, wow, this cell phone store is really interesting. And, you know, and uh, at the bottom, there are blocks from the Parthenon. And that, that, and being part of that process is, is thrilling and, and interesting, but it's like, it is really impenetrable and has been, um, and, and exhausting and also is like it's causing my stomach to churn all the time because that reformer in me um, and I listen to people all around me say like we need reform <laughs> uh, but they don't but they don't even appear to to uh, to recognize like like reform reform what would how would you even begin like all of these all of the people in these meetings are like they really are um, doing they, they are participating with good intent with the best intentions and it's so crazy how how large groups of people all working with the best intentions can produce results that are so far from what we would imagine were um, were our best effort, hmm. uh, I guess, is, the, is, what, is what becomes like so clear and why. I mean, every single person I've met on the campaign trail, I haven't met a single contemptible person. They are all, mm-hmm. they are all really interested and really trying to make a difference. And you know, they have varying I- ideas and ideologies, but they're all people of goodwill from across the whole spectrum of people. And yet they are complicit every day in these small incremental um, compromises that are not compromises of like, well, that's a good idea and that's a good idea. Let's compromise. They're compromises of like, well, what can we get done in a minute? Uh, 
and you know and what and you know and we've got four more of these to do today so you know that kind of stuff where you're just like well we're building this is we're actually building a civilization out of these parts out of these one minute increments and that's hard to explain in a minute it's very hard to explain in a minute. I think I probably just took at least four, maybe six. Well, that's what this is for. This is your this is your venue for that. <laughs> but you know, it's your. It's funny because I think I think of the way what it's like to be a candidate, right? And it seems like a big part of it is you know people are going to expect, as I've always guessed anyway all along, is that like the sort of customers always right approach of like you got to listen and you know so forth, and they. You know, it's something I think you and I share is that sometimes we reject the argument somebody wants to have because we can't agree on the terms of the argument. Hmm. Like, I, I can't argue with that about that because you're trying to rig this. And like, in order for me to have this argument with you, we would first have to have a pre-argument where I tell you why I disagree on the terms of what you're saying. And I might be able to propose a better argument for me to have, for us to have. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's that must be incredibly frustrating because I I feel I do that all the time where I'll say hey wait a minute you want to have an argument about this thing uh, that doesn't make any sense we we we've got to have a better argument than this like let's let's have let's have it let's have an honest normal discussion about something but it, it cannot be I guess what I'm trying to say is if people come to you and they present you with some kind of half banana balls idea about like how the world is you know how do you respond to that without sounding like you're pushing back yeah. Or, or, or even if somebody is good-hearted is saying, like, we need reform. And you're like, okay, well, give me an idea what reform looks like. Right. And, 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 and everybody has a different sense of what the problem is. I mean, this, we're having this huge argument in the city right now about, like, about rent control. And there are people of very goodwill who really want to help people who believe that rent control is, like, a two-word solution to a... <laughs> because rent control... Because rent control, uh, a two-word solution to a to a to a huge and far-reaching spider web of, of of a of a of a condition, even not even a problem, a condition that produces innumerable problems, and um, you know, and they stand up and and say uh, rent control, and people applaud, and you go, okay, well, um. And and what you find on the campaign trail as you're as you're going along and you hear people applaud as he says uh, he or she says rent control over and over, and I see other candidates start to you know get to the end of their speech and say oh and also rent control in the hope yeah in the hopes that they can get an applause and then you know and then that starts to feel like wow there's a broad movement for this and there isn't really. No one's taking the time to really think about it. I mean, the people who are who are who are promoting it have thought about it. They, I, in my opinion, haven't thought about a, a lot of other things, but they've thought about that. And I mean, it's like it's like when I was twenty four, I remember feeling like, well, if you know, if uh, if no one had ID. Then we wouldn't even need IDs, whoa, <laughs> or whatever, right? It's like the 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 solution to the problem is always so simple until you uh, look at the the effects of it. And the the and the incumbent in my race is he is saying in every instance it's too complicated to explain right now, and so he's doing a very bad job of communicating to people that it's complicated because he is he's being con- he's doing that condescending thing. 
of people who do see how complicated it is, right. but they don't. But they don't find a way to say like, here, here, here are the top. Here are the here. Here's the idea, right? You don't need, And I think I think because because the tendency in this game is to say like, is to speak in bullet points. So it's like, one, two, three, four, five. Here are the five things. And that's not an effective way of communicating the idea. And an, an effective way to do it is actually with metaphor. You know, you, you, it's, it's much easier to say like, well, how do I explain what being in politics is like? It's like being, it's like playing fantasy football in a way. You're dealing with people who have never played, who are probably never played professional football, but who are experts at the game of numbers football right and, wow wow okay that is pretty good right and that is um that's a metaphor to explain what i could have tried i could have struggled and failed to explain about politics using five actual facts about it and that's true in civic life too people are like trying to explain things using statistics and actual facts about things that are that are actually pretty apprehendable by normal people. If you just say, you know what this is like? This is like a basketball game where everybody is on a unicycle. <laughs> and people go, oh, I can picture that. It is kind of like that. You know, yeah, it's a basketball game where everybody is on a unicycle and most of them don't know how to ride a unicycle. So, uh, and, and I, think the best, I think the best people in public life have that have that ability and it isn't it isn't wrong or untrustworthy to use metaphor to explain things it is you know and 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 you hear it all the time you campaign in poetry govern in prose but i feel like you hmm. need to that's good i like that this, right but i feel like you also can govern in poetry a little bit and 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 part of that is the outreach you have to sit in the meeting and listen to all the data and synthesize it and make decisions. But then when you take that back out to the people and say, here's what we decided. That's another opportunity to, mm -hmm. you're not campaigning then, but you are speaking in, in poetry to people. And I think there would be a lot more, people would feel there was more transparency in government and they would feel like it was less conspiratorial if they weren't if they weren't buried under statistics uh, when really statistics are bad at explaining things. Well, and statistics can also just become a different kind of analogy in some ways. I mean, you can, you can uh -huh, uh -huh. bang the facts to, to look like any, anything you want, depending on, you know, what data set you, set you show or, or, uh, or how you show it. It's just that it feels real. It feels like, it feels like real arithmetic when you're using numbers. For some reason, I don't know why I keep laughing. I keep thinking of so much of what you talk about. I keep, I don't know if you ever were a Simpsons fan, but the, the episode kind of based on the music man where the guy comes to sound, town and wants to sell Springfield a monorail. <laughs> and his entry is he walks into the room and he goes, you know, a town with money is like a mule with a spinning wheel. No one knows how he got it and danged if he knows how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, you're right. Yay. I yes, I guess. <laughs> Shut up and take my money. <laughs> I think you know, I think about junior high all the time. Mm, me too. And I know and I know we both do and I know that there's a there's a big part of uh, uh of our listenership that agrees with us in principle that junior high should be uh reformed. But I I think about I think about walking into junior high 
And, you know, at that age, I was kind of shaped like a dim sum. And... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it took a minute for that to sink in. You know, was, like a pork bun? I was shaped a little bit like a shumai. <laughs> I had a I had a kind of a frilly edge and then the, mm-hmm. the, the you know the then I was big more, meaty big porky center. I was porky like a little porky doughy uh, on the outside and porky in the middle. A small a garbage can shaped pork bun. Pork pocket. Uh and but I but I was also I was entering puberty right so all of a sudden I was producing all this dander and, and like uh, eczema. <laughs> and emotionally i was still a child mm-hmm. but i was having feelings that i had never had before so here i am a little i'm a little i'm a little dumpling <laughs> i'm a little shoe my in my school <laughs> uh-huh. and and uh and like my body is just ex- extruding things that i don't want in it uh basically just essential oils just pouring out of me and I'm having all these in, intense feelings about everything. About, sure. A uh, lot of feelings. A lot of feelings. Yeah. A lot of feelings. And the other kids in the school are all going through this stuff at different rates. Some of the guys in the school were already men who could grow mustaches and had muscles. And some of them were like me, just like pupa. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, like the teenage girls also on a wide spectrum of where they were on the on their transition to adulthood and how cruel they were prepared to be to each other and to me. And what they what happened in the school portion was I, on the first day of my honors English class the teacher said in grade school you are allowed to write in pencil but now you're in junior high and we are preparing you for high school which is a big deal. And so in preparation for high school, you now have to write all your papers in pen. And if you write a paper in pencil, uh, you will get an F. Wow. And this was at the beginning. This was, in fact, I think the first, my first year of junior high was also the first year, coincided with the first year of erasable pens. Oh, yeah. I remember the big erasable pen. Eraser mate, right? Wasn't that what it was called? Right. I do remember it was real, like, um, kind of uh, spoogy, like greasy yeah. kind of. Gummy ink. Gummy you, ink, yeah. you could erase. It was erasable pens, but they were not inexpensive. And I had a really hard time keeping up even one writing implement on my person, right? I just, I would get done writing a thing and I would put the pen down and I would forget to pick it up or I I don't know where I don't know how I lost so many pens and so many pencils so I was never able to even I I didn't feel like I even had control over my possession of any kind of implement but I could not get my head around writing my reports in pen I don't even I'm I'm trying to think back well why do you think you know partly it felt just like a punitive rule. Well, like an like it was arbitrary. Just an yeah. arbitrary rule. Yeah. Yep. Partly because when I was, you know, like when I would get an idea and I wanted to write something, I would grab the thing that was nearest me and I had a lot of pencils and very few pens. I don't know, honestly, why 
But I kept writing reports, sometimes two, three-page reports, because you're in seventh grade now. You have to write, you know, if mm-hmm. you're going to write a report on World War II, it's got to be three pages long. And I would write them in pencil, and I would hand them and get an F. <laughs> and I got Fs until the school agreed that I didn't belong in honors English. And nobody was reading my papers. They were just, the teacher was just giving me an F because I had failed to follow the rule. And my personal experience of walking around the school is that I'm also being taunted and tormented and, you know, and being forced to take showers with other boys and, you know, and I have strong feelings for everybody and they are, you know, and they have all the equally strong feelings for me, mostly that I am a, that I am a dander-covered homunculus. And yet the adults in that situation wanted me to write in pen and I either couldn't or refused to and got Fs until they sent me down. They sent me down to regular English, the class that you're describing where it's like, well... Some of these kids in this school, the ones in honors English, are going to go on to college. Mm-hmm. And then there's regular English where, you know, some of you may go to a college. Um, and uh, some of it's not remedial English where you know you're never going to go to college. But, you know, you're down here in the mix now with the, with the, the normals and good luck. And I was so, you know, I was like, I was so astonished and, and, Surprised, no one had ever suggested that I would be that 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 I would be a regular, right? And I was backed into a corner, and I worked and worked and worked that quarter, and you know, just set the curve in that class until the teacher of the normal English class went down to the principal and said, "Please take him out of my class." It's um, he's just like he's. He requires too much attention. And so they took me out of that class. There was nowhere else for me to go. And so they put me back in honors and told that teacher to just deal with it. And she dealt with it by giving me a D <sighs> instead of an F. That was okay. So there you go. It's all worked out. <laughs> so I figured, so I, you know, so I gamed the system. Now, if you can imagine, you know, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how many people that listen to this podcast were also uh, flops, right? Growing up, but if you can imagine the pressure on a thirteen-year-old or twelve-year-old, like what, what a bunch of Fs on a report card, Fs and Ds, mm-hmm. feel like um, when you're also trying to not explode every day when you're basically like a water balloon filled with oil and covered with hair and skin flakes and you're already just barely keeping it together just barely making it yeah and you know and what you want is just somebody to tell you you're okay and you're going to be okay yeah and you don't need to learn you don't need to write a three-page report about world war ii you don't need to learn you you know like you should be you should basically just be First of all, allowed to sleep till eleven in the morning, and second of all, you know, just like put into a into a soothing room with soft pillows, and and given like music and film appreciation classes, 
right? That would be, those would be amazing junior high schools. If you just went and took art appreciation classes for two years where you got to sit in a dark room and watch, watch well, like, good what movies. If, what if there was a role that was definitely not a teacher, not exactly a guidance counselor, but more like just like a, a neutral assessor with a little bit of empathy who would just kind of see like what you need now. Like yeah. Almost like a, like a junior high concierge. Like somebody who would just go, you know what? You need a couple weeks of sitting on a beanbag chair and just watching some movies. Yeah, right. Or, or how, now it's time. Now it's time to cut trail. You're ready. How would you empower somebody to do that, right? And and oh knowing like what the systems are like, how would you how would you pick somebody that had that acumen, train them properly, convince the the wider world and the school district that that person should have that kind of gatekeeping power? Right, right, right. And then have the have the facilities waiting to receive kids at different levels of development. Oh, it's, it's, it, it, and the thing is, the other part of it is as much as we all try to be what, as much as we try to be like disinterested third parties in something, um, there's something very difficult about like not getting heavily involved in something hmm. where like, you know, you get a little bit of your dick in the door about something and you get, you get, you know what I mean? You start feeling really strongly about some issue. Your feelings get hurt. You don't like the way this kid's trying to make you look bad. You'd have to have somebody who's like the ultimate super adult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Standing and, and, and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be evaluated based on test scores. It would have to be somebody who mostly got, you know what? Maybe they get a bonus in 20 years if you're still alive. <laughs> And it, it, they'd be like a railroad roundhouse, right? Where the just the train comes in and the roundhouse turns, and like very humanely putting people not not in you know not in the way that we do it now, which is like, well, you're on the uh, you're on the shop track, right? And you're on the college track, mm-hmm. but rather like you need to listen to music right now, and you need exercise, and you know. <sighs> And you what, a, need, what a godsend that would be. You need to dance. You know, like there, every day there's a moment with my daughter where I'm like, you know what you need to do right now is dance because you just need 20 minutes just, of dancing. You just, need to, you just need to do that. And she's just like, woo, dance, and just goes. And it's like, thank God there is dancing. Um, yeah, right. And what, and what kind of – and the thing is you couldn't build that – you couldn't build that idea the way we typically build ideas, which is mm-hmm. – on the burned out blocks of the Parthenon, you would have to build that idea from the vision backwards. Oh, right. See it and reverse engineer it. And I, because I think that is the experience that kids have at expensive private schools because they have, there are, there are people there who are being paid uh, to take that kind of, of, um, of like structuring gentle hand with their charges. But like, how would we, how would we introduce that kind of thinking to the city at large and, uh, you know, up against all these people like, well, what kind of job training is that? Oh my God. You think, you think your job's hard now. Can you imagine being that person who like, who wants to introduce the junior high concierge? <laughs> maybe they could be sponsored. Hmm. Maybe. Well, it, I guess, I guess. You know what? We'll call it the LinkedIn concierge service. Or maybe <laughs> okay, that was a bad idea. Maybe the Redfin uh, student guidance program. But you know, it's just there's just so much about education that is so 
and it's like it's like a road system, right? The road system works a certain way. We realized we needed wider roads, so we made wider roads. We made more of those roads. We made overpasses and underpasses, but we haven't really fundamentally rethought the road as a thing in a really long time. We talked about this a lot. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about schools. I mean, thank God it's there, and thank God for the the, like, the teachers. I feel like I always have to say that. Are, and, the, and the parents and the kids. and the, it's, a, it's a great thing, but it's really it's time for a big refresh. Along the lines of the Cutting Trail program, I mean, you know, instead of going like, well, should you have some interdiction with the police or should you have suspension or should we ignore it? No, you go cut trail. That's, 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 a, that's a thought technology because you're, you're really thinking, look, we need to get outside of the system that we're in right now. You need a czar or something to do that probably. And, that, and that's what's crazy that... that- that to we can't get people to agree on really simple incremental projects but i wonder you know i wonder if it's possible to have a kind of collective czar or a collective um pharaoh where <laughs> collective pharaoh a collective pharaoh where people are you know where people are able to be inspired by a vision of the future in 20 years and put aside the the normal bickering of like, well, where are the crosswalks going to be? Well, where, how is that going to affect my sewer service? And say like, can we all agree on a, you know, like, and I know, I know it's really pie in the sky and that, and that we try this all the time, but we are, we're more and more capable all the time Two of both like disseminating a vision more mm-hmm. broadly than we've been able to in the past and collecting people's opinions in real time. So we don't anymore have to say like, here's the big project that we envisioned. Here is the bill that would enable it to pass. And now let's put it to the voters and that'll be, and, and, and every once in a while, you know, we can robo call them in advance of the, and, and the people that have home phones that reply to, polls will give us a, some sense of what, how people feel about this. Right. Like we have the technology now or increasingly so where we could reach a large population of people in real time and say, here's, you know, like here's the project. Here's the modification of the project. Here's, you know, here's the, the comment period is already closed, but here is the, you know, like what do you think about this option versus this option and, and move people to choose a to choose to make a big leap mm-hmm. and then say all right we have chosen this and now reverse engineering how we're going to get this done is going to be a separate process that isn't and it's going to involve some big action but it's under the umbrella of this thing we've all, already approved right and so you know we're not going to we're not going to build this out of uh stacked bbs we're going <laughs> to we're going to build this back from a thing that we've all agreed is what we want. I think it's, boy, this has got to at some point be sort of a, I don't know, a part of any political strategy, I guess, is in how you phrase things or how you frame things. And I'm interested in your idea of saying like, you know, in some ways, I guess I feel like if you're overly specific about what pointing out what you're doing and the context, almost everybody's going to disagree with it. Yeah. Especially if you say something like, okay, you got, here's, here's, here's the anti-pattern. Here's the bad example. Okay, you guys, we love our educational system and we know how important that is, but it's time for us to revolutionize it. Like if you put it that way, people are going to freak in some ways. 
Because, or or even if you say things, if you get super specific, then you get the lobbies involved. It needs to be something that's so, uh, along the lines of a super train type effort. It would have to be something that's like so big that nobody would see it coming. Yeah. And don't yeah. call it school. Call it something else. Call it something else. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, and I think it, I mean, there are so many examples of how, there are so many examples of big projects that we have successfully built that we can use as, as guidelines, but the world has changed so much. Like everything's such an artifact of its time and context. Yeah. It's so yeah. everybody, you know, people like me say, Oh, well, we want to have the Tennessee Valley authority again. Wouldn't it be great if we took all these people who can't get jobs and got them. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm modernizing. I'm not even saying like, let's go have them build a dam. I'm saying, let's have them work even in some kind of uh, an IT capacity or do something or like volunteer in a school. Like there's all these kinds of ways that you can do that. But like that, you know, some of those biggest projects came out of something that was really kind of a fluke that it ever happened at all. Yeah, you think about what I mean in in living memory in uh, in my parents' lifetimes, the government went across the nation and basically built enormous dams in every conceivable river valley where they could get away with it. And if you think about what it would take now for <laughs> somebody to come along and say this uh, this unspoiled valley that's full of little villages and stuff, we're going to build a dam at the end of it to capture water and, and create power. No, it would never, it would be more than impossible. Right. And so, so there was this window of time when it was technologically possible to build giant hydroelectric dams and still socially possible. And we built a bunch of them. And for us here in Seattle, like our electricity is cheap because of these giant dams that they built just in my in my father's lifetime. That's so amazing. And, uh, you know, and we're here and here we are, right? I mean, I'm, we're making this podcast using that power in part. And so, and the interstate highways were built in our lifetimes all across the country, uh, based on the premise. You know, now we're that, not saying <clears throat> we didn't break a few eggs to get there. Sure. Maybe we, maybe, maybe we, not like, every mom and pop motel made the cut. <laughs> We kind of tore down the centers of every major American city, but look at the roads. And, it, you know, to think about that, like after the war, there was a sense of that, that, that we had progress. The, the, the big businesses, the oil companies and the, and the automobile companies were like roads. And, and they did this fantastic job of convincing us that building roads was, the pub, was in the public's interest. And they attached all this weird cold war spookery to it and then just eminent domain huge neighborhoods in the centers of all of the towns and built giant smoky loud caverns chasms and now here we are and every day i drive on it and and everybody's you know and we're driving on them couldn't do it now couldn't do it now not in a million billion years Right. But the next thing we need to build has to be on that same scale and it has to be better and cooler and conscious of the mistakes that were made and conscious of the fact that when they built the dams and they built the freeways, they also thought they were doing the best thing. Well, yeah, and there's an urgency. I mean, one of the things, you know, uh, I know we share a love of 
uh, World War II, especially documentaries. The, the part of those things that never stops blowing me away, there's several things that never stop blowing me away, but one is the how quickly every con- country, Germany, England, the United States, how quickly they were able to ramp up not just the uh, military uh, personnel, but the equipment. Like how you could suddenly start building thousands and thousands of planes that quickly mm. in the 1940s. <laughs> Doesn't that seem, it seems like that would be impossible today. My dad trained, my dad did pilot training in a biplane. With, You're kidding. With fabric wings. No, I mean, he, the, the U.S. Navy uh, taught him to fly in a biplane. And by the end of the war, which was 19, you know, of, in America, 1941 to 45, not even five, I mean, not even four years, really, less than four years. Uh, he went from training in a biplane to there being jet aircraft and atomic bombs. And it's like, uh, that was amazing, you guys. Hey, wow. I guess when we really put our mind to it, we can do some stuff. <laughs> Gee, really nifty. You know, like if we hadn't had that war, how long before we, how long, what would history have looked like in terms of technology? And is it is it going to take another war or another cold war to no. make us want to be innovative in an interesting way again? I don't think so. I hope I hope that um you know, I hope we can do it without a war. I think that we can do it with a with like the with the the like with the pent up energy we have and unleash it in ways that are positive and cool. I think it's speaking of positive. <laughs> may I turn this in a positive direction? Where the hell did that bell come from? I've never heard that bell before. That's the political bell and it's time for us to turn to how is John's campaign going? Uh, may I am kind of pivot here? Of course. Um so feel free at this point to discuss anything you would like about the campaign. Uh, a question that I have, uh, probably a continuing question I will have. Uh is of course you're always welcome on your own program to talk about the travails. I'd like to know what's going great, and I'm always interested in what turn what is turning out better than you um, expected or hoped. Is there like where, where are you going? Like wow, these people are awesome. Like is there anything happening where you're particularly hopeful, not just for your campaign, but just for about about the city and how things operate? Are there things going on that you're particularly excited about right now that are going better than you might have anticipated? Well, uh, so in the good news department, I have been endorsed by the Sierra Club, which is an enormous, uh, an enormous vote of confidence. Uh, the Sierra Club had previously endorsed the incumbent, my opponent, um, Tim Burgess, multiple times, and they came to me and said, "You know, we, it is within it. It's sort of in our charter that once we've endorsed somebody, we mm-hmm. don't stop endorsing him." Because that's that's not totally sensible. That seems that would seem weird, right? Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, we're not trying to be partisan. We're trying to be, uh, we're trying to, you know, ha- have people moving in the right direction. But they, in fact, switched their endorsement to me. So that is a major uh, deal. And um, you know, and I have been endorsed by several of these Democratic Party organizations, and I'm going this week to meet with four more. Uh, give four more speeches for uh, four more Democratic Party groups, and then stand there uh, in my flowered hat and hope that they hope that I'm the mule that they pick to ride. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> um, I'm a pretty mule. <laughs> and people are, uh, you know, people are gathering behind the campaign. Last night, I went to a, a very unusual show, which was 
Chris Novoselich interviewing Duff McKagan about his new book. That's a very and handsome photo. It was a it was an unusual. Duff Kagan's show. a good looking guy. He is very he's very handsome. And, he is and fit. He's fit, and also Chris is fit. They're both very fit. And that guy is really tall. He's very tall. Is he like what is he like six seven? He's yeah. really big. He's big. Uh, and they invited me up at the end of the show, and both of them said, you know, this is a great opportunity to vote for one of us, and this. And we sat on the stage and talked about the Seattle City Council, and and they both said really kind words. And encourage people to vote. And then uh, Chris stood out and they both stood out and, and like signed autographs and took photos with people and about, a, you know, what seemed like 700 people lined up to get their pictures taken. And uh, Chris was wearing a Vote Roderick sticker in every photo. Wow. Which is cool. And, you know, and that was I had a I had a I had a really emotional moment. You know, I'm, I'm we're backstage, the three of us, and I'm sitting there talking about when they first met back in the grunge times and i'm sitting there thinking like 25 years ago could i have imagined that i would be that that the three of us would be hanging out hard all three be alive that we'd all three be alive and that we would be hanging out (laughs) i don't exaggerate it but (laughs) you know and just making chit chat about stuff right and you know as we get up to go take the, the 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 uh the stage manager comes back and he's like you know you're on. Mike McCready just introduced you guys, and the the you know uh, Mike came out and like gave a warm introduction, and then was like, and here they are. But we were all still upstairs, upstairs talking about old times, <laughs> and so the stage manager's like, you know, you guys are on, and Duff uh, grabs Kristen is just like, hey man, you know, I saw that that Kurt Cobain documentary, and I just wanted to say like, and. Then there was another five minutes of the three of us kind of standing in a little huddle. Whoa. Talking about, and uh, you know, and I've known Duff for a long time and I've known Chris for a while and, you know, and I admire them and love them both. But like really human five minutes talking about really, really human hmm. stuff. He was, and, he was, he was my favorite thing in that documentary. Well, and, and he was, he was great. And really, he was really, you know, moved and in that moment, like moved to, to describe his feelings about it and, and, you know, and thinking like if there's anybody in the world that can identify like it's tough and like all the people that we, that those guys knew that didn't make it. And, the, and the people that I knew, like our generation, a lot of us didn't make it. Right. And it was really, really heavy and also really, really beautiful and life affirming because these guys are heroes and, and, 25 years ago, I would have said like just legendary figures to me and yet like superhuman guys with like just really a lot of humanity and love. And, and, and so in that moment, you know, it's just life affirming for me to remember that people are not statues of themselves. There is, it is possible to go through life and remain a fully functioning person who's trying to feel and um and you know entering into the political world it's there there's all this pressure to like mm-hmm. to eliminate that from your vocabulary to stick to the numbers so that was really validating and their support was validating and so anyway you know 
that was all really exciting. And then, and, the but other- that's that's to say probably the unstated that that's not an opportunity that is going to come up that many times in a given ten year period. Well, right. To be in that particular room in that particular way. It seems like you're probably getting, it's like going to be a little bit like, like reunion sometimes where you're, or just opportunities of different people being together in the same place. That must be, must be a great feeling. Uh, yeah, right. It it is. And, and, you know, and to think that in 1991, Guns N' Roses and Nirvana were bitter enemies, you know, Axl Rose and Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love got into a fist fight at the backstage at the MTV Music Video Awards because Axl Rose told Kurt to tell his bitch to shut up. (laughs) You know, welcome to the early nineties. Welcome to the jungle, right? And so, (laughs) gotta die. You know, and Nirvana was perceived to be the antidote to Guns N' Roses's. Rock and roll. They, they, were, they were like the Sex Pistols to Guns N' Roses' uh, Queen, maybe. Yeah, or Guns N' Roses' Zeppelin. Right? Yeah, right, right, right. And uh, and so you know the the time heals all wounds factor, and also the like, how dumb were we then factor. All that stuff really, really poignant, and you know that was a conversation that was only going to happen once, and there was only one witness to it, and it was me, and I just felt fortunate and and. Uh, and you know, just like personally touched, and and that is happening a surprising amount because I went to that. You know, the we have that Shell Oil uh, drilling oh, right, rig right, right, right. And, and that was what people were paddling about. That was what they're paddling about. And you know, Shell is kind of the only oil company that is still trying to drill in the Arctic Ocean, and they've tried a few times, and they've uh, they've like lost a lot of money trying. It's very hard to do. And this is their last chance kind of, you know, they don't, they're not going to keep doing this indefinitely. And they've towed this ocean going oil derrick here, which was built in 1985 and has drilled all around the world. And they're just waiting for the ice to clear up there to go up in July and try one more time. And the city of Seattle has decided that this is where they're going to make their symbolic stand against it. And there's and all the usual suspects are saying like, well, union jobs or, you know, don't be naive. Fossil fuels aren't, you know, we're not ready to divest from fossil fuels and all the normal kind of business oriented. It's none of our business. It's Alaska's problem, all this stuff. And and ultimately the big criticism, like it's just a symbolic gesture. You guys don't have any, you know, there's nothing you can really do. And and yet here was this huge gathering of people to say no don't drilling in the arctic is idiotic if you make one fuck up up there mm-hmm. like the oil is you know it's it's frozen conditions right if there's an oil spill up there that oil's not going to organically degrade it's going to be it's going to just be in that arctic gyre going around the world and befouling Greenland and Iceland and Norway. It's just going to spin around there for centuries. Don't be idiots. Like it's over. The fossil fuel era is on the, I mean, it's not just waning. Like, let's just start to say it's over. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we We just, we just don't realize it's over yet. It's over. It's done. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to take 15 or 20 years for us to, to roll out all the, the different solutions to the problems, but like it's done. Just, just give it a rest. And so, yes, it was a symbolic 
bunch of hippies in wet fleece in kayaks out there. But then there was a big a big meeting uh, where you know stage and speeches and stuff, and there were all these Alaska natives who had come down from the North Slope. These guys from Barrow and the the you know the whole community of people who had been active against Anwar and Arctic drilling for decades, and it was really emotional for me to see that many Alaska natives all in one place and speaking uh, about their about their land and their feelings because that was you know it was like it was like a I haven't been back to Alaska in a couple of years. And, mm-hmm. it, and before that, it had been a long time since I'd been to an event like that. And just, you know, the cadence of, their, of the way they speak and the, and the songs and their, you know, the, the places they were referencing, it was all really, really... Hmm. That's nice. It felt like family to me. And I was, I was so moved by the fact that that was a long journey and... And a, and a lot of them, a lot of the, the speakers were like, we've been protesting Arctic drilling since 1970, and this is the largest crowd we've ever seen. Wow. Like Talk about been, a difference. Like, right? Are you serious? Yeah. We've been That's doing crazy. this for four, over 40 years, and mostly to unreceptive audiences. And now here, look at this. Like here, we, here it, something really is moving. And, you know, Obama just approved that Arctic drilling, uh, you know, as a, in, in one of those inexplicable moves where you're just like, what are you what what are you doing, guy? I yeah. thought we were I thought we were all speaking. Weren't you the guy about we get a lot of those moments? <laughs> weren't you the guy with global warming guy? Weren't you that guy? Uh, and that's where it does feel conspiratorial like oh shit like did he get read into some Area 51 shit and now he's making these decisions and we're just not. Right. And I don't think that's true. I think he's just, you know, I don't know what. But but the fact is, like, I was at this event that was a little bit hippy-dippy, but when you really got into it, or when I really got into it, I was like, fuck, you guys, this is it. Like, the this era, which we have been told our whole lives was, was um, you know, since 1980, We've been saying one day we'll transition away from fossil fuels, and we've been told over and over again, like, not possible, not possible, not yeah, yet, not, not, not yet. this year, not yet, not yet. And it just feels like, oh, there's more people on the now side now than there are on the not yet side. Hmm. And that's a big, that's a big moment, a, a world historical moment. And that feels amazing. Yeah. Just, and just the fact that it's, it, it no longer requires us to, have belief and faith that things can be different because the reality is already changing. <laughs> I, I would say that, except a guy tweeted me from Seattle the other day, quoting my, uh, w- one of the lines in my political bio that say, um, you know, it's great to live in Seattle because we don't have to argue whether or not the polar ice caps are melting. <laughs> and the guy tweeted me and he was like, sounds like somebody needs to Google polar ice cap extent. <laughs> now wait a minute is that just is that the uh is that the high end of the iceberg you think it's going to end up in aliens and chemtrails well so 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 i was like okay, tell me more <laughs> you know what i'm going to do i'm going to google those exact words and i googled the exact words and the first thing that came up was this scientific study with all the data about the shrinking ice caps 
And so I screen capped it and tweeted it to the guy. And I was like, you mean this first result of those words that you said? And he tweeted me back and he was like, well, if you believe a bunch of data from a bunch of scientists, yes. But here's a Deadspin article that unmasks the lie. <laughs> and the Deadspin article was like, you know, actually on the north side of the uh, Antarctic ice shelf, uh, it has put on a bunch of ice in the last two years. You know, the, uh, the, the west side or the west north side of the Antarctic ice shelf has grown considerably in the last two years apparently according to this article but then as you read down the article it says but every other aspect of the antarctic shelf is catastrophic shrinking to the point of like the point of no return and of course the arctic is almost completely free of ice now john roderick fat cherry picker (laughs) and so i wrote him again (laughs) knowing that i should not Mm mm-hmm And I said, leave it. I said, sir, (laughs) did you even read to the end of the article that you're citing? And he wrote me back again. And he was like, you know, if you want to believe the climate, uh, the the big dollar climate lobby. And I was just like, Mm. my God, even in Seattle, there's there. I'm sure tons of people sitting in the den of their split level home, shaking their Shaking, shaking their like disembodied rubber hand <laughs> at the at the damn scientists, John. You, your problem is partly you're, you're mobbed up with big science. You know all those. The thing is, all those you're, scientists. You and big truth. <laughs> if you if you go if you go look at the people who donate to my campaign, you'll find a lot of scientists there, a lot of bat ichthyologists. And uh, people studying the migratory uh, patterns of the of the monarch butterfly. So special interest groups. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. they are donating sometimes twenty five, thirty, even fifty dollars to my campaign, and I am beholden to their interest. Not to mention the computer maths people. Oh, those guys! <laughs> Bunch of trade school dropouts. <sighs> so disappointed. <laughs> So disappointing. <laughs> I thought you were going to be different, man. 